Oh, it's so good to be in church, isn't it? No place else I'd rather be this morning. No place I'd rather be. Hebrews chapter 9, go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We, many of us, had a wonderful time last night at uh, the Coombs house. They invited us into their home. Well, actually, we had to stay outside. Uh, had to start a fire just to stay warm. Uh, but it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, I was talking to Lindsay. They had a, a big bouncy house thing. It wasn't a bouncy house. That's what they were supposed to have, apparently. Uh, but the company the do- that uh, rents it, a dog chewed it and, and ruined it. And so we got upgraded to this big slide. It was a dual slide. And the kids were just having a blast. And every adult was looking at that thing honestly like, man, I wish I could go up there and do that. And apparently after we all left, some of them did. So uh, I wish I'd have stuck around for that because that looked like it was a blast. Every kid was just, I bet they slept really well last night. Um, But I would have loved to have taken a turn or two on that. Um, So anyway, we had a great time. The church should be a fellowship, a community, people that love each other, that spend time together, and that's exactly what we did last night. And so I want to thank Tim and Lindsay for um, hosting that and uh, doing that. Uh, Every year they do that, and we just had a great time. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. In this uh, central part of the book, the writer again, is stressing the superiority of Jesus and now the superiority of the new covenant, highlighting the old versus the new. And here in chapter 9, he relates it to a matter with which I think we can all identify, and that is the issue of a guilty conscience, the issue of a guilty conscience. No matter how young or old you are, We all know what it's like to feel a sense of guilt. Many in our world today would try to move us away from that feeling. They would say, you know, guilt, that's that's an old, archaic notion. You shouldn't feel guilty. That's just going to produce a lot of stress and anxiety. You need to sort of just kind of sweep that all away. But the fact remains that we all understand it. We get it. And the Bible says that our conscience enables us to apprehend the moral demands of a holy God. We are are built with this innate sense of right and wrong. We're not just physical beings. We're not just social beings. We're not just sexual beings. We are moral beings. And therefore, we're able to feel guilt when we realize that we violated God's commands. It's really a very complex subject, this idea of guilt. Now, there are things, listen to me, there are things that have happened to you that were not your fault. There were things that have happened to all of us uh, at some point in our lives that were perpetrated upon us and that we should not feel guilty about, okay? But if we're honest with ourselves, 
We've all done things. And we're given guilt uh, for a reason. Uh, we have children, and uh, Mama says, I've, I've made these chocolate chip cookies uh, for, for the ladies' retreat. Do not touch them. And they're going to sit here on the rack, and they're going to cool, but they're off limits. Don't touch them. Kids say, okay, yes. Mama goes, and she starts doing laundry and whatever, and oh, they just look so good. <laughs> they're sitting there, and the, the chocolate is still kind of soft. You know what I'm talking about? And there's little pieces of pecan sprinkled throughout the cookie. Does anybody understand what I'm saying to you? And the child looks around. Mama's not around. And you just take that one cookie and you start eating it. And then you get lost in how good this thing is tasting. But then you hear the door open. What happens? Panic. Fear is struck into your heart when your mother walks into the room. It should be a, a feeling of joy, right? Here's, here's my mother, the woman that loves me, that gave birth to me, that loves me more than anything in the world. But all of a sudden, you're struck with panic and fear, and you run and you hide. Why do you do that? Why do you run and hide with that chocolate chip cookie, listening for your footsteps of your mother? Because we have a feeling, there's a sense of guilt a sense of guilt that overwhelms us because we know that we've done something that we weren't supposed to do. A sense maybe of unworthiness, of estrangement. All of that's part of, of a guilty conscience. Men and women feel estranged from God. They feel estranged from each other. Sometimes we feel estranged from ourselves. And we're not going to be able to, to deal with all the intricacies of conscience this morning. It's both fascinating and complex when you stop to think about it. But, but we need to acknowledge its place in the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Here in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, the writer makes it very clear that the way that, that, the, way that the Old and the New Covenant uh, were able to deal with this matter of the conscience were drastically different. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Go to verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Go over to verse 14. In our reading this morning, uh, 13, the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are what? Outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death or from useless rituals? so that we may serve the living God. One of the problems, I think, with modern psychology is, is to always externalize guilt. Guilt is something that's from the outside. We externalize guilt. You say, well, I've done something. I've, I've done this, and I, and I feel 
I feel guilty about it. I feel like it was wrong. And, and psychology says, no, 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 don't feel guilty. That's not your fault. You know, these things have happened to you, and that's why you, you did this and, and why you did that. So don't, don't feel guilty. But the fact remains, we do feel guilty. Because after all, we stole the cookie, right? We did that thing. And sometimes there ought to be a sense of guilt. The idea of chapter 8, verse 12, that we looked at last week, where it says, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. God not only forgives sin, but he forgets it. And he cleanses us. He cleanses the guilty conscience. So, the Word of God comes to men and women not to demoralize us, not to make us, you know, feel so overwhelmingly bad, but it's so that we would turn and we would see our great, our great need and give our lives to God and turn to Him. Guilt is given to us in the same way that the fear of fire is given to us. It's there as a guide. It's there as a protector. We teach our kids, don't touch a hot stove. Why? Because if you do, that will hurt you. And in the same way, I think that that's what God does when he gives us guilt. When we've done something wrong, we should feel guilty about that so that we would turn to the one who could help us with our guilty conscience. Chapter 10 and verse 2, I want you to see this. Much the same thing. And we'll talk more about this when we get to it, but 10 and verse 2. If it could, talking about the sacrifices that were made year after year after year, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and they would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But the fact is, they did feel guilty for their sins. Uh, chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So let's work our way through our passage this morning. And I want you to notice that the writer does not denigrate the old covenant. He does not put down the old covenant. The old covenant was good. The old covenant was right. It was God-ordained. God gave it to the people for a purpose. So he never puts it down. It, it was very significant, and it had its place. Notice this, chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table, the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, 
and the stone tablets of the covenant. I think it's interesting that um, this is just an aside. I'm going to throw this in for free, okay? But it's interesting that the Hebrew writer uh, talks about this, and he says uh, what was inside of the, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff, and the stone tablets. In the Old Testament, only, only the stone tablets are in the, are in the Ark. Aaron's bud, uh, uh, rod that had budded, the jar of manna seemed to be in front of the ark. Uh, they're, they're not inside the ark. I find, I find that interesting. I threw that in for free. Verse 5, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. And unless you think we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about uh, the tabernacle and all of that this morning, notice how he ends verse 5. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. So some of you are going, whoo, thank goodness, we're not going to talk about all that. Suffice it to say that the original readers of this book, probably mostly a Jewish audience, they would have been very familiar with this. You remember we've been talking about time and time again over these last several weeks that these original uh, recipients of this letter, these Jewish Christians, for some reason, they've been tempted to go back to Judaism. There has been this temptation to say, I don't know if, if following this, this Jesus of Nazareth is worth it. I mean, we don't have a high priest uh, anymore here on the earth. We're so used to these things. We're so accustomed to the, to the sacrifices and the rituals. What the Hebrew writer says, these acts that lead to death are these useless traditions that just happen over and over and over. They're tempted to go back to that. So the writer of Hebrews says, you know, he lays it out about the first tabernacle, but he says, we, we can't go into all the detail about it right now. They, they would have known what he was talking about. This was very common to them. He says, we can't discuss it right now. We can't go into full detail. So look with me, if you will, beginning here in verse 6. You remember what we said last Sunday? Uh, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that's Act 1, Right? We're, we're talking like a, a two-act play. Act one is, is the copy. It's the shadow. But you've got to get to act two to understand what all of that means. Act two is the reality, okay? Act one is the copy. Act two is the reality. Verse six. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. It is so difficult for us, I think in our contemporary culture, to really understand the awesomeness and the majesty, the holiness of God. People throw around the name God and the name Jesus so flippantly. It's, it's hard for us to understand what, what he's talking about here. The priest would, would, would be allowed to go into to the first room. They, they could go behind the first curtain in the holy place. They could go that, but, but even they couldn't go behind the second curtain. 
And the people, the regular folk, they couldn't even go behind the first curtain, okay? It's almost as if you had a, uh, a key fob, you know, on your lanyard. You know, you go to work and you put it up and you've got clearance and you can go this far, but, but you don't have clearance to go any farther than that. The people couldn't even go behind the first curtain. The priests could. They could do their ministry and their work, but only one dude had a backstage pass. <laughs> only one guy could go to the, to the most holy place, and he could only do that once a year. It was a scary, frightening thing to go into the presence of God, to go behind the curtain, to go behind the veil. There was an altar of incense, and, and the, the, whole, the high priest would burn that altar of incense, and the smoke would fill the room almost as if it was a barrier, even though he's in the Holy of Holies, a barrier between him and a holy God. How can a man be in the presence of a holy God? It's a frightening thing. These early recipients would have, would have understood that, the way that he lays it out. A scary thing to be in the presence of God. I think the key for us to godly Christian living is an awareness of the majesty and the holiness of God. You know, God is not the big, the big guy upstairs. God is, is not, you know, our buddy. Yes, Jesus is our brother and he is our friend, but God is completely and wholly other than we are. And to come into his presence. You know, when we come into worship, uh, one writer I read years ago said, we ought to come in here with a crash helmet on because to be in the presence of a holy and an awesome God should strike fear into us. At, at, at the same time that it strikes, it, it, it elicits excitement from us, but we should also understand that we're in the presence of a holy and a majestic God. We don't come in here flippantly. We don't come in here casually. Yes, we're excited. We love each other. We hug each other. We should greet one another maybe with a holy kiss from time to time. But to be in the presence of God, it's an amazing thing, something not to be taken lightly. Verse 7, it says, the high priest entered the most holy place just once a year, and he never went without blood. Blood as a safeguard for himself. He had to make, he had to make a, a sacrifice of blood for himself. Why? Because he himself was a sinner. If I'm going to be in the presence of Yahweh, Jehovah God, I'm going to have to cleanse myself with blood first so that I can then make atonement for the people. So he never entered into the holy place once a year without blood. And after cleansing himself, he could then minister for all of Israel. It was a fearful thing, listen to me, to enter into the space that symbolized the presence of the living God. So we have these two truths in Scripture, and there's sort of a tension. Uh, there's sort of a tension between them. At least there is in my own mind. On one hand, God is awesome, and He is holy, and He is wholly different and other from us. Number two, on this hand, the Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus has done, enables us to cry, "Abba, Father." 
Abba, Father. Isn't that wonderful? We should bow in fear and reverence because God is so holy, and yet we can, we can rise in confidence and say, Abba, Father, just like a child would, just like a child would to his father. Verse 8 tells us that ordinary men and women didn't have access The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Ordinary folk just didn't have access to God. So this is what I want to do. I want to leave you with three truths this morning. This Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant... Access to God was restricted. It was restricted. Ordinary priests were restricted from the most holy place. They couldn't even go in there. The people couldn't even go that far. Only one, the high priest, and only once a year. People began to look to the priest as their access to God. And under that old covenant, that, that's the way it was. The priest was your access. He was your go-between between you and God. You, you couldn't go to God yourself. You had to bring a sacrifice to the priest. And then there were things that he had to do. There, had, there was the letting of blood, and there was the shedding of the blood, and he would take that branch of hyssop, and he would sprinkle the worshiper. He would sprinkle the altar to cleanse, and then the, the butchering of the animal. There were so many things that you had to do in order to make a connection with God. But you couldn't do it yourself. You had to go through these rituals. You had to go through the priest. Look at verse 24, chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, we have confidence now. We have confidence to enter the most holy place because of a new and a living way that was opened up to us by the blood of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just some man in the flesh. He was God, the God-man. And because of that, he's now entered into the heavenly sanctuary. Jonathan read for us, it's not made by hand. It's not, it's not of this creation. The earthly tabernacle was just a copy of something that was in heaven. It was the shadow. The one in heaven is the reality, and Jesus has entered into that for us. And because of that, you and I now have direct access to God. How awesome is that? We get on our knees, and we lift up our voices, and we are speaking to the king of, of the universe, the creator of all things, Yahweh. And we call him Father. We call him Abba. 
Yes, it's a fearful thing to be in his presence, but because of what Jesus has done, we can approach him with confidence because we know he loves us and he calls us his children. Under the old covenant, the cleansing was only partial. There was only a partial cleansing. Let's go back to verse 9 of chapter 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. The old covenant couldn't answer the deep problem of man. The real barrier, listen, the real barrier between God and man is not a curtain. It's my own sinful heart. That's the real barrier. It's not a curtain. The real barrier between God and men and women is our sinful heart. I know God is holy. Sin deserves to be punished. But all the sacrifices of this external system could never truly cleanse the sin and certainly couldn't cleanse the conscience. It was just an external thing. It's almost as if we talk about kicking the can down the road, you know. Every year they had to bring the sacrifice, and every year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he would make an offering as if to say, okay, we're going to kick the can for another year, but all during that year we're going to have to keep bringing sacrifices, keep bringing sacrifices, keep bringing sacrifices. More animals die, more blood is shed, but it never truly cleansed the sin, or the conscience. So under the old covenant, access to God was restricted, the cleansing was partial, and thirdly, the pardon was limited. Look back at, at verse 7. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins. Look at this. And for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. For the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. The old covenant only covered sins that they had done unknowingly. That they had committed in ignorance. But what about me? What about me? What about the sins that I know I've committed? What good is a religion that only deals with the sins we didn't know we were doing? What about all those sins that I've, I know I've done? And there are a few. There are a lot. There is an overwhelming amount of sins that I know I've done. What good is a religion that only deals with the sins that we didn't know we were doing? 
I dare say there comes a point in our lives when very few sins we commit, we commit accidentally. Oh, I'm not saying that it's impossible. I think that there can be times where maybe I offend you. I say something, and I, and I don't even know that. Maybe I've sinned against you. I didn't mean to. But I dare say most of the sins that we commit are things that we know are wrong. We might wrestle with it for a while, but we just say, I'm going to do it anyway. I choose to do it. What about those sins? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You see, when Jesus shed his blood, it wasn't just a partial cleansing. It wasn't just for the, the sins we committed in ignorance. Oh, there are some of those, I, I admit. But Jesus shed his blood for all those sins that we know we're doing, all the sins that we committed. And listen, guys, all the sins we're going to commit. Does that not blow your mind? It's not just what I've done. It's what Jesus knows I'm going to do. He shed his blood for that. He's entered into the most holy place. And like the high priest had to bring, bring blood for his own sins, Jesus didn't bring blood for his own sins. He brought his own blood into that heavenly tabernacle for you and for me. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it. White as snow. So he not only deals, he not only deals with the physical, with the sins we commit, but he has cleansed our conscience. When you lay your head on your pillow at night and there's something that, that you've done that is just, that is, is just, your body's aching, your mind is racing because you're unsettled because of what's happened and you can't find rest and you can't find peace. You, there is no rest. There is no peace for that. There is nothing that you can do that can assuage your own conscience. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. Are you washed in the blood. What kind of blood is it? The soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are you fully trusting in His grace this very hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? No animal sacrifice could truly take away the sins of the worshiper no blood could truly cleanse your conscience. Only the blood of the Lamb of God.